available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner going to try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we're the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. we got a good show for you today. Spring has sprung in the Pac-12. we got some programs starting their spring football drills. So we're going to go into Arizona State, who started first. And Stanford a little, a little bit. So we'll talk to Chris Cartman and RJ Abadia. If you have any questions or comments for us, pack12podcast at gmail.com. Or you can call or text us too. I think we got a text this week. 424 532 0678 is the number. You can also tweet us at pack12podcast. The website is pack12podcast.com. Really simple. You can find all our old episodes there. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Tune in, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Megaphone, any place you can find a podcast, you can subscribe and rate us. We like those five stars. Those are great. I don't know if we got anyone's recent, Dave, but uh, we we love when people do that. We do love it. Um, it's sparse. It's the off season. I get it. I yeah. get it. Uh, if you guys don't start um, putting five-star reviews, we're going to quit doing the show. Just letting you know. Here, okay. uh, we did get one. We got one. Oh, okay. Ready? Yeah. MK Yahoo says subject line 25 percent of the stanford fan base and then the entire message is meh but we got a five-star review so that's the most important thing um that is very close to the threshold where i don't want the review it's not quite there but it's very close because look if you're not going to really insult us if it's just going to be lukewarm i think that's the worst thing right I think yeah no I think you're right it's uh, you, you want either love or hate you don't want meh no meh's bad meh meh's the worst thing you want emotion strong emotion that's all we want and we usually get it like we usually get some pretty good uh, pretty good raw emotion from uh, our listeners out there so we do appreciate that uh, yeah and also there's the Reddit we could do some. Reddit action, uh, reddit.com slash r slash podcast of champions. So we try to put the episodes up there and get some discussion. And we have over a hundred members now on our little Reddit page. So we'll, we'll try to grow that and maybe it'll get, uh, get rolling in the season. We'll see. Maybe, maybe a hundred total people, 106 people don't even sell it short. 106, 106. Killing right now. It. Nice. Just killing it. <laughs> One of the comments on our Pac-12 signing day show with Brandon was, was there a cat playing with a catnip ball that had a bell in it during this week's episode? Uh, I think that was the audio from Brandon's Brandon? side, I would assume. That's right. Yeah, that was the train. He was he was apparently recording the show from a train yard. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. Well, good. Interesting. All right. Well, we have, um, so what we're going to do today on the show is 
We'll go over some topics to start. Then we'll uh, do our interviews. We we talked to Chris Cartman and RJ Abadia. And then we'll, uh, we have some questions that you guys have sent in. So we'll kind of start off, I guess, with all that stuff. So maybe we'll do some, some new stuff first, David, if that works for you. That sounds wonderful, Ryan. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. Uh, well, let's see. So first up, um, well, there's a little coaching move, but a, na- a name you know pretty well, Demetrius Martin. Uh, he's moving from Arizona to Colorado, so still going to be because of the late uh, coaching change in Colorado. Uh, there's going to be some assistant coaching moves. Demetrius Martin spent a lot of time at UCLA. What, what, any thoughts on him? I mean, he was pretty much known as a good recruiter. Yeah, very good recruiter. Um, he w- he recruits L.A. I think he's going to do that again at Colorado. Um, ton of L.A. roots. Um, he was a really engaged recruiter, always recruited the defensive backs really well, but also he would assist on recruitments outside of his position group. I know landing Ellis McCarthy in that first Mora class, a big part of that was Martin. Um, so he's a really valuable asset. I think that's a really smart hire by Carl Durrell. Um, that's a guy who will definitely get him some bodies from, uh, from the LA area for sure. Um, and this is now one, two, three, four. This is the fifth PAC 12 program, uh, Martin Wolf coach for. So he's definitely taking the tour of, uh, every PAC 12 school. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a really good hire. Um, you need recruiters, um, and somebody who's going to, Probably give you you're gonna you're gonna punch above your weight in L.A. if if Martin's recruiting for you. Yeah, so that's a you know interesting move there. Um, there was also uh, John Wilner did some really good work this past week, and you know there's only three presidents left that were around to hire Larry Scott, who's the uh, commissioner of the Pac-12. Michael Crow at Arizona State was one of them. I guess we could have asked uh, Chris Cartman about this a little bit, but. That would have been planning ahead. We don't yeah, have that. I did write this down, and I was thinking about it, but I never did. But uh, we already recorded those those clips, so we'll uh, we'll play them for you in a little bit. Yeah, if we sound exhausted right now, it's because we've already been recording for well over an hour. Yeah, we've already done that stuff. But the, the interviews are good. I think you'll get a good idea for what's going on at ASU and Stanford, respectively. But we would say so. Michael Crow has come up as a candidate to be the president of the UC system. So it wouldn't be any individual school. And it's my understanding is that president doesn't really have say over what's going on at the individual school. So he wouldn't be able to champion for Larry Scott as that, at least my understanding. Um, I know Arizona state pushed back a little bit on the report and they had, he said he hadn't been contacted officially, but it looks like he's a, a candidate there. And that would be one less you know, president president that would have, you know, the ties to Larry Scott. But any thoughts on on that, Dave? Um, no, not really. I mean, I think it does remove some protection for Larry Scott if he does indeed take um, another one of those jobs. But there's no guarantee that whatever presidents come in are going to be any more, I don't know, committed to athletics on a real level. Because even, I mean, for these universities, the 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 athletic stuff is for a lot of them, and I know UCLA tends to think this way, at least to an extent, it's small potatoes um, compared to these like huge, you know, enormous budgets that they're working with at the president level. Um, so I don't know. It kind of depends on who gets the new, if, if you know, if ASU's president does leave, who gets that gig and are they any more 
interested in, in, you know, weighing in on the future of the Pac-12. Um, so it's a wait and see. But I think if you're if you're in the um, in the fire Larry Scott as soon as possible camp. Yeah. Getting rid of yet another one of his benefactors would be a good thing. Yeah, uh, we'll see. I don't know what's what's going to happen there. Do you do you know much about becoming the president of the the UC system? Like, is that someone that you're even aware of when they're doing that? Do they have any involvement? Like I said, no. With- I mean, it's I think it's more of a political position than a actual power position. But I don't really know. Um, I'd love to have it if they want to give it to me. I'd take it. Oh. Um, hmm. So I'm I'm in. Just tell me where to sign. I'll do it. I like that. Uh, and then there's been some, maybe a little muscle flexing, I guess you could say. I, I guess I started part of this, uh, but a couple, you know, if you, if you follow John Wilner and uh, I mean, John Canzano did a story on uh, Oregon and if they would have any opportunities to do something else besides just kind of go along with the conference and the, uh, the you know, the revenue gap that's, you know, that we see forming and it's, uh, or it's already there and it's growing every year. But I, I think this was the catalyst was I did a podcast interview with Mike Bone, who's the new athletic director at USC. And towards the end, we we're you're talking about some of the deficiencies b- being in the Pac-12. And he had talked before about wanting to have more of a leadership role in the conference because USC is just, you know, is the flagship school. But they've had pretty bad, you know, athletic directors, terrible athletic directors that just haven't really helped to lead anything. And, and Mike Bone seems like he wants to be able to do that. And I asked them specifically, like, hey, if things are, you know, keep shaping up to be bad in the conference, could you, would you look at going independent or joining another conference or something like that? And he said, and he said, Larry Scott would agree with him, which I don't think is the case, but he said that everything is on the table and that kind of made the rounds and he, Dennis Dodd did a follow-up with him and he said he wasn't thinking about leaving the conference, but, you know, continue to talk about, you know, they needed to do something. So it's, it just seems like he was saying status quo is not going to cut it anymore. And then John Canzano did a piece about it too. Like what, you know, what would be feasible for Oregon? So I don't know, Dave, with, when you have like powers in the conference kind of openly talking about, Hey, what else can we do? Because what we're doing here isn't working. I, do you think that's a good, I, I think it's a good thing overall for the conference. What do you think? Because they, they, it's kind of putting Larry Scott on notice like, Hey, things have to get better. This is not going to work this way. Yeah, I just, uh, as we talked about last week, I don't know, I, I really don't know what's to be done. Merge with the Big 12? Like, what do you even do to generate a ton more revenue right now? Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's certainly uh, provocative um, for USC or, or, or Oregon to suggest that. Um, I just, if, if USC wanted to do that, I don't know that there's like some saving ploy that the Pac-12 could employ to get them to stay, but I don't, I'm not convinced that USC is ever going to do that or really any of these schools are going to do it. Um, I think there's, uh, I, I think there's some realities of like, especially the non-revenue sports and the way they like to have them compete and just kind of the culture of the PAC 12 that keeps all of these schools generally together. Um, now it could reach, and it, it maybe rapidly is approaching some catastrophic point where this all becomes an actual reality. But right now it seems like it's all very theoretical. Um, and I don't, I really don't know what Larry Scott can just do to, to, you know, forestall their threats. You know, it's just, he's, uh, I think he's kind of a lame duck. Um, and as you talk about in another one of these notes, 
his contract's going to expire in two years, which is, you know, a long ways off, but also not. Um, and I don't know what he can even get done in those two years. Like what what's left out there um, from like a snapping up revenue standpoint, unless he does something huge, which is, you know, something that's probably wholly unrealistic, like, again, merging with the Big 12 or doing that that weird relegation system with the Mountain West or whatever. And I don't know how much revenue either of those bring in. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And I think that's the that's the rub. And this was another piece by John Wilner talking about, you know, what can you what can the Pac-12 do with Larry Scott? There's two years left on the deal, but you can't just like wait till the two years is up and say we're going another direction. Like it was it stuff's gonna have to happen soon, which is interesting because you either have to make a decision, you know, over the next year or, or, or less to keep them. Otherwise you have to have a plan in place to uh, replace them, and then because you need that that plan to get rolling for the 2024 television deal, and it's going to be, you know, it, that's super important for the Pac-12. So I, at this point, I'm just not sure what you can uh, what you can do. Yeah, but yeah, um, uh, I don't know. Is it, I mean, are you are you optimistic at all? Like, what's the? Am I optimistic about yeah. the state of the Pac-12? No. No, 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 not at all. Um, But I mean, it's it seems pretty dire because of the circumstances of what's happened the last couple months with two coaches leaving for other conference jobs um, in at least some large part because they got paid a lot more money. Um, They were to some extent. not great fits for the conference, both being like originally from out of the region. But when we're starting to talk about the fact that guys have to be good fits for the conference to stay in it, we are now talking about a a niche conference. This isn't, you know, a, a, in the same way that like for every school in the Pac-12 besides USC and maybe increasingly like an Oregon or a Washington but for every other school, for the most part, you have to recruit within the footprint. Like you have to recruit this region because those guys who are from out of region are going to transfer out at a higher rate. The schools now almost need to think of themselves that way when they're hiring coaches. And that's going to be a new thing. And I don't think it's a good feeling for the league. I think there's still a viability. And I still think it's I mean, it's obviously still a power five conference. It's not going to be the Mountain West ever, but it, it's it's a different reality to reckon with when you're not even at the top levels, like maybe USC, we don't really ever get their exact salary figures, but maybe USC can pay with the big boys and maybe, you know, Oregon with all of its donor money can do, you know, the occasional big splash hire or whatever. But for the most part, I'm having a hard time seeing the other schools being competitive on a salary scale with even the top 15 in the other leagues. And that's, that's a new reality to deal with because that wasn't true really even five, 10 years ago. Um, you know, yeah, it wouldn't be uh, uh, the average salary in the PAC 12 wouldn't be commensurate with sec or big 10 money, but it wouldn't be that far off. Yeah. And the top guys were still making similar money to the top guys in other conferences. Now that gap is widening in a big way. And that's just going to be a different reality. It's going to have to change some hiring decisions. It's going to have to change some investment decisions. It might inspire more patience from schools because, and it might allow them to go back to a model that was more patient and that really looking at the results from the, some of these schools may have been more successful 
like waiting around and seeing if a coach is going to be good in his sixth or seventh year instead of firing him after four. I don't know. Maybe that suddenly becomes a viable path for more schools. Um, but it's going to be a different model. Um, that doesn't make it, it – it's still going to be interesting. It's still going to be something to watch. And like I said, it's never going to drop down to like Mountain West levels. There's just too much built-in interest from yeah. the fan bases. And I know we talk about the fan bases as a bad thing most of the time when we're comparing it to the SEC. But comparing it to the Mountain West, the fan bases are enormous and great. Um, it's just a different thing. It's it's kind of a middle-ish league in kind of a weird spot. And it's um, it's always been a little bit different. And this is going to make it have to embrace those differences uh, even more. And, you know, the whole point is you want to win a national championship. You want to get to the college football playoff. And the Pac-12 is just on the outside looking in. Like, I was looking up, oh, what are the odds? You know, what are the national championship odds? You look at Sports Betting Dime. They have a nice graphic for the top Pac-12 schools and you know they list Arizona State, Oregon, USC and Washington as the four like potentials and only Oregon is like everyone like Washington I mean uh, Washington, USC and Arizona State are all plus 10,000 like that's the most it goes up to uh which is I guess 100 to 1 um and Oregon's plus 4,000 so that would be more like 40 to 1 and you don't see that in other conferences there, there's just better chances there's basically like three like complete complete outsider you know long shot long shots and then like Oregon which is a long shot as well but uh it seems like to be somewhat in the realm of possibility but that's that's just not what you want to see you want to see two or three teams that are like hey if things break right that team's in the national championship and and it's just not that way with a Pac-12 right now yeah that's um, true all right so what we're going to do is we've recorded two episodes of or two segments with uh you know Chris Cartman and RJ Abadia like we said we're just going to go right into those and play those back to back you'll hear the uh ASU sound and we'll we'll talk about Arizona State with Chris Cartman and then we'll follow that up with Stanford and then we'll come back after that and do uh questions so we'll be you know, enjoy those interviews and then we'll be back at the end uh answering some questions all right, the first team we are going to preview for spring football. It's actually a little bit of a recap because they already started. We have Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> and no one better to talk about the Sun Devils than our buddy Chris Cartman. Does a great job over at Sun Devil Source, sundevilsource.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network. Chris, thanks for so much for joining us in this crazy time. What you got the basketball and spring football already starting for you guys. You know, you guys hit me up, and I was thinking, do I really want to do this? <laughs> <laughs> I got to, like, talk some sense into Ryan and David again. I mean, come on. Hey, I, but the only way we, the only way we ever pick ASU correctly is when we talk to you first. That's yeah. the only way it ever happens. So okay. we have to. I'm sorry, but you're obligated. So we got to do more, is what you're saying. I mean, basically every other week, probably. Yeah. Well, I bring we it up a lot. we get it down ourselves. I bring it up a lot and people are like, well, what do you think about Herm Edwards now? You thought he was terrible. I'm like, hey, dude, I said that was terrible. Talk to Cartman. I'm like, oh, they'll actually be pretty good. So and he's been, you know, better than expected. So I've, I always give you credit. I'm like, hey, when we talk to Chris, he got to give us the real skinny on what was going on there. I'm a squirrel. I'll find a nut every once in a while. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll, probably, I'll probably be really wrong like this year. Something now that I ran my mouth a little bit. Yeah. Well, Arizona State started spring football on February 24th, if you can believe that. It will run all the way through March 28th, and that will be 
the ASU spring game. So how like I guess what's happened so far, Chris? How many practices have there been, and, and what's been going on? Yeah, so there are four practices in already. They do it in a pretty wow. condensed, yeah, a pretty condensed schedule. That was the only week that they're doing four. Uh, they'll have three every week through the end of March, with the exception of spring break for ASU, which is kind of early semester schedule and all that. Um, so it's already kind of, you know, enough to get a pretty good sense of things. Uh, they put the pads on in their last practice. Uh, I, I feel like the, the biggest adjustments are just the staff being quite a bit different. They've got new schemes on both sides of the ball. So I'm kind of figuring that out more so than the personnel because most of the personnel is back and pretty familiar with the exception of a few key guys that they have that are that are new. Uh, Kellen Dice, who's a grad transfer offensive tackle from Texas A&M. And then the two four-star running backs that were early enrollees are, are kind of the bigger name people that are new. But other than that, really just like checking out these schemes and seeing what they're all about and what they're going to look like on the field – has been a puzzle that I've been trying to sort of put together. Let's uh, let's start with the defensive side of the ball because first I want to get through all the drama from the off season where it went Tony White for a little bit seemed like, um, and then uh, now to I think Marvin Lewis and um, co-defensive coordinator, correct? Um, so what what's kind of what's been going on there, and and how does the scheme look to you so far? Right. So essentially. Uh, Danny Gonzalez left. I think that was, you know, I think that was largely because of his family situation. His mom died last year. His dad was kind of struggling. It's his home. It's where he grew up and all that. So, and then, uh, they, it looked like the ASU was just going to promote, um, you know, basically his right hand man and Tony White, but then, uh, he took a job being the coordinator for Syracuse. I think I think a big part of that was the creeping ideologies of Herm Edwards, Marvin Lewis, and even Antonio Pierce into what ASU was going to be defensively. And, uh, and so Tony White kind of saw that was the natural evolution, and he didn't want to be in the way of that in any kind of a way. There was no, like, animosity or problems amongst them. It's just the 3-3-5 is it's really its own thing. It's, it's unique. And now it's, it is starting to spread a little bit, but um, so they're going to more of a, a four man front. Uh, that's, that's a big difference. So they're kicking inside Jermaine Lole and then, and then uh, Steph Wright, who redshirted last year, USC fans and others might know him because he was kind of a high profile recruit. Uh, there are now three technique tackles as opposed to defensive ends in this scheme. And then Amiri Johnson uh, is 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 got a chance to be really good as a other end. He's gained a whole bunch of weight. So um, then, what happens is you you end up taking a defensive back off the field uh, on base downs, and not always like against air raid teams and maybe some other prolific passing teams. They may go to a base nickel, and they worked a lot on a nickel defense. But um, it's really going to look more like a traditional four three style defense. I think for the most part, that's certainly their goal and kind of where their their focus is right now. 
Um, they're going to have to continue to recruit defensive linemen because there's a, you know, there's, they're probably short a few guys there given this kind of change and they've offered like 50 in the next class. But the good news that for them is they return a lot of talent on the defensive side, a lot of experienced players. Uh, you look at, uh, you know, most of their defensive line starters are back. They lost one guy. Uh, they're at linebacker. They have all their guys back except for Kalen Kirst Thomas, who was really good actually last season as a senior. And then on the back end, uh, the really only big loss was Kobe Williams, who was a probably their their best corner, one of the best actually in the Pac-12, I would say. So they lost, you know, three to four guys that are important, but uh, they return most of their starters, uh, a lot of their key backups, and I think they're going to be in pretty good shape. Although whenever you're changing your your approach somewhat that's something that you have to kind of watch carefully sticking on the defensive uh side of the ball you mentioned all those guys coming back you know kobe williams you know be a loss things like that um how have you seen the players kind of adjust i know it's only four practices to the different sort of scheme are they they seem to be encouraged by it they like it or how they've adapted so far well i think they're they're for the most part and everybody's kind of say the right things, but you get a kind of sense uh, of, from the subtext of these conversations or just you can you can tell when people are really being straightforward with you. Uh, and I, I think that they like it a lot. The Everybody grew up playing football in more traditional style schemes, usually, or you have experience uh, with that. And so the, it was really that the 3-3-5 in uh, the way that Gonzalez ran it was that was the thing that was different for guys as opposed to what they had normally been doing. So in a way, even though they haven't done it in college, this is sort of more familiar to their football origins in general, I would say. And they're still very aggressive, uh, probably even more so, actually, which guys tend to like. Uh, up front. And then when you're, they're going to play a lot of man coverage, they're going to, you know, press you up and all that. And that's what defensive backs like anyways. Right. So um, I I think that it's a, it's a, a style that they'll embrace and they'll enjoy. Um, You know, it's a lot of, you know, trying to get to the quarterback quickly, being aggressive. They'll probably bring a a little bit more pressure and um, they have the defensive backs, I think to be successful, even with the departure of Kobe Williams, Jack Jones became increasingly better last year in his first year uh, with ASU. And I think he's a good man coverage guy at this point. And Chase Lucas is extremely experienced, one of the most in the Pac-12. He had some lapses here and there uh, last year, but I think I think fewer than in the past. I don't think he had a, uh, he, he kind of, his issue is probably against the, the best athletes at wide receiver, giving a little bit too much cushion and not quite getting there because maybe you're afraid of getting beat vertically. But I, I feel like he is every bit capable of being an all league player if he just really buckles down and, and gets it done. And um, at the safety level, Shari Crosswell, Cam Phillips, Evan Fields, those guys are all back, and they started and were very good players last year, and they're taking one safety off the field. So they they actually have a lot more competition and depth at a spot that was already pretty talented. So, And then, of course, Merlin Robertson, Darian Butler, uh, those guys are back and three-year starters, and uh, they have a couple other guys that I, I would consider to be pretty good linebackers uh, at this stage of their development. And DJ Davidson, TJ Pesafea, 
of course, I mentioned earlier Jermaine Lowley. He had the most tackles among all defensive linemen in the Pac-12 last year. So they got they got the they got the dudes. I think um, uh, I'm sure a couple new guys will get opportunities, but really it's going to be about how they execute and function as a unit. Um, switching over to the offense because there's another change there. Um, Herm Edwards made for me what was I mean, and this is an outside observer, but a surprising move. Um, not really because, I mean, yeah, it's justified to fire your offensive coordinator sometimes, but just I wasn't expecting it from a, you know, the perception about Herm Edwards is pretty conservative, and ASU had a good season, um, and there were mitigating circumstances that a lesser coach might have used to forgive the offensive output, you know, the offensive line issues at the beginning of the year. Uh, but no, Herm fired Rob Likens and then hired, um, I think it's Zach Hill uh, from Boise State. What um going back to the move itself, what do you think was ultimately prompting the move? Was it just full body of work at that point? And what are you seeing so far to Zach Hill? Yeah, I think that you summed that up very accurately um, for an outside observer and and more so than not really performing up to par last year. I think it was more just the the synergy of Rob Likens and Herm Edwards and, and others in the staff and just not being the exactly the way that Herm Edwards wants it. They're, they're, uh, Likens is a very high, strong energy. I think during games on the headsets, he's kind of more emotional and maybe a little bit too uh, unfocused. And I, that, that I don't think was really what Herm Edwards wanted. I think he wants more of a Everything is kind of together and mapped out. And I have my fourth play already in my mind that I want to run if we get into this type of a situation. And uh, and then, of course, also his background in the NFL and being very tight end friendly. He always talks about run game and defense travel. You know, to be run game, you're usually going to want to throw two tight ends out there and, and, and play some smash mouth football. And that's definitely more of Zach Hill than Rob Likens ideologically. And uh, Boise State has really uh, done a great job over the years um, across just its coaches with figuring out creatively uh, how to scheme to have an advantage, how to use personnel, uh, depending upon whether your strengths are at tight end, wide receiver, running back, et cetera, building around quarterback play. Uh, all those things, I think, really spoke to Edwards. And he thought that when you lose, you know, Benjamin and some uh, really uh, established good wide receivers, Brandon Ayu, Kyle Williams, and you're trying to figure out the best way to creatively put your best foot forward, that, that Zach Hill would be able to do that uh, with the personnel that they have in keeping with just the uh, the the philosophy that uh, that more broadly that Edwards wants to have, they don't really have a great tight end room because that wasn't an emphasis in previous years, and so that's going to have to be built out. They do have a, a guy who switched from linebacker to fullback, Case Hatch, who I think is is really well suited for the role and is going to help them out a lot. They have a, a kid who was a freshman last year and played a lot of tight end, Nolan Matthews, who should be pretty good. Uh, in the next year or two. And um, 
I think they're going to use a lot of motions and shifts and trades and stuff that Chris Peterson does at Washington that has really that he was pioneered and, and was very successful at. And a lot of other teams have kind of caught up with. But uh, if you if you if you stay on the cutting edge of, of what you're doing with a lot of that, that's, uh, I think, something that can be very successful. And the players have said that it is uh, simultaneously more nuanced, but also in some respects kind of easier. And that's that's good when you get when you hear that from players, because guys, they, they seem to, you know, they're still, you know, at the times trying to figure out where they need to line up and their route assignments and all that stuff. But uh, when they do uh, run the things that they're supposed to and it, it looks kind of dynamic. So I think that there's some intriguing things on that side, but there's definitely some more unresolved things from a personnel standpoint as well. So yeah, true freshman Jaden Daniels lighting it up last year. Uh, you know, the highest rate of recruit that Arizona State had got at the time. Uh, but losing some veteran uh, skill players around him, like you mentioned, Benjamin, Ayuk, uh, Kyle Williams, even a guy like Cole Cabral. Um, all those guys are gone. A new scheme. How has he kind of adapted these first few practices to having new faces out there around him, but also running something completely different? Yeah, he seems to be doing very well. He did throw one bad ball that was an interception on the second practice day, and he immediately knew that it was a mistake. Uh, this is a guy who last spring did not throw a single interception until a fourth down play on the last play of the spring game in 15 practices, which is like, that's like unprecedented. Like, yeah, that nobody, like, <laughs> like nobody's ever seen that probably happen for a freshman quarterback in, in his uh, indoctrination into college football. But uh, I just think that he's, he's a very savvy, smart player who has uh, erred on the side of being a little bit conservative, which worked for him last year as he was incorporated into what they were doing. And uh, he's going to now start to open it up a little bit more, put his foot down on the throttle a little bit more, I think, as a passer. Uh, as long as the receivers enable that from him, you know, that Frank Darby is a big play target. And I think that you're going to see them really try to stretch the field out with Darby. And then with some of the newer guys that they're adding, of course, they signed the four four star wide receivers. LV Bunkley Shelton, I think, will be a big addition as an underneath higher uh, volume type of a target. And Brandon Pierce is a speed guy. He, he's every bit of four, three speed who's added a bunch of size um, from his one year transitioning from college of the canyons didn't make much of an impact last year, but he's been all over the place catching balls so far this spring. So I think that could be a big boost uh, to their offense, especially because they're really putting him in motion a lot and shielding uh, his route releases, which is kind of getting him into some pretty good spots. So their, their offensive line, uh, as you guys know, it's, it's, they lost, uh, last year they were really kind of green and, and struggling, and then on uh, now they've lost four guys from that group that either started or were their key reserves. I would say four of their top six. So uh, they did add Kellen Dyche. That's gonna, I think he looks better than what they got last year from a 17 year old Ladarius Henderson at left tackle. They're gonna kick Henderson over to the right tackle position. Uh, they're they're two freshmen who started last year, both Henderson and Donovan West who actually may have been their best offensive lineman last year as a true freshman, which again, that's like, that's crazy. 
Um, those guys are kind of, I think they have four starters that are pretty well solidified now. And then they're waiting to find out about a six year of eligibility for Cade Cody, who's been a career reserve, but he looked like he was going to be the starting center last year before he broke his foot, uh, right before the start of the season. And there's a few other guys. I, I, I think that they might not, uh, take a step backwards as a group. Uh, despite those four losses. And that's a, that's a really big, important development because you have to be able to protect Jane Daniels and have some balance and run game in order to give yourselves the opportunity to take advantage of the talent that he is and also a defense that really should be maturing going into uh, this year and next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, watching uh, Going back to those first two or three games last year, watching Jaden Daniels looking so poised but constantly under pressure because the offensive line was just trying to figure out like really like even where they were. They're like, we're in East Lansing. How is this happening? Um, It was amazing. Honestly, watching a freshman be that poised. I mean, I was, I was sold on him watching him just dance around at Michigan state. Um, But um, looking at uh, the skill position breakdown and everything, how much clarity do you think you're going to get on who are the, who are the guys for Jaden in, the wide receiver core coming out of spring, or is it going to require a lot of these freshmen getting reps in August? I really do think it's going to take into August. Uh, we know Frank Darby is going to start like that's a given. So you got one spot that's locked in. Right. The, the Ricky Pearsall played a lot last year as a freshman and he's versatile enough to play any of the positions. He's very savvy, smart, hardworking, good size. Uh, reliable pass catcher. So I think he's going to play a lot. Don't know if he's going to start. And then um, you have, uh, to me, it's kind of wide open after that. You have Jordan Porter, who's a speed guy who could take the top off a of defense. He's got good size at about 6'2". There's a lot of things I like about him that uh, I think are pretty intriguing. And then um, other than that, it's like you get Johnny Wilson, who's a big 6'6 field stretcher. I think LV Bunkley Shelton is going to play a lot. If not start, I'm interested to see Chad Johnson brings because he's a little bit more polished. And I think he may be a little bit more ready than some of the other guys. Um, and, and then the guy who probably is uh, the most Brandon Ayuk like style wise uh, is, is, is um, the, the other receiver that they're adding from Sacramento, Elijah Badger. So uh, I don't know who of them is going to be the furthest along because none of them are here. I think that there's going to be, you know, two or three guys that are obvious. And then after that, it's going to be kind of a scrum. But they have enough talent that I sort of think that that one or two of these young freshmen will emerge and they'll end up being fine. Chris, the uh, transfer portal is always an interesting topic in the offseason. We've seen some schools lose a lot of players. seems like Arizona State's got helped a little bit by the portal. What What's been the ratio of like guys going in and versus coming out and, and how has it helped Arizona state? Yeah, I don't, it's just, they are not in a place right now where they're losing guys who would be starters. It's just, they, they have lost a bunch of guys in the first year under Edwards, but it was like almost entirely writing on the wall. I'm not going to play or I'm not going to play as much as I want, or I don't really fit the, the defensive scheme. Um, now, other than losing their kicker, which was kind of a kind of a weird situation that involved a disagreement about an injury and a guy who frankly wanted to you know not didn't want to play unless he got a full season for statistics. Other than that, 
um, they haven't really lost guys. And last year they tried to add junior uh, uh, division one grad transfers and they weren't successful with their offensive line. But this year they got, as I mentioned, Kellen Dyche earlier from Texas A&M. He would have been the number three offensive tackle for the second year in a row with the Aggies. And he wanted somewhere he could start um, because the, all their, all their top players were in the same class. So he looks actually quite good, even better than I probably expected as a left tackle. And and then they're getting Henry Haddis from Stanford in June. Uh, he started last year. Of course, uh, Stanford had that huge, crazy rash of injuries with their offensive linemen, like five or more guys go down. He was one of them, went down early in the season. But um, I think he's going to probably end up being that fifth starter uh, on the interior for for them and um so that's why i kind of think between those two guys the two returning guys who are going to be better and then finding an, uh, a fifth guy kate cody or maybe ben scott who's taken a lot of one reps as a center despite being a retro freshman i think he's very talented uh kid out of hawaii who is um on probably hawaii's best team in recent years so um other than that they they they, they kind of i think wanted a pass rusher to supplement what they're doing schematically in the, in the transfer portal. And that didn't materialize. So, um, you know, they're going to have to kind of manufacture. I think that may be one of their question marks is who's going to be an edge guy. Who's going to be a hand down guy, uh, beyond Amiri Johnson, who's going to be able to get to the quarterback. All right. I've got one more, Chris. Most important thing for me is that Ryan and I, mostly me don't sound like idiots heading into the season. So I want you right now, four practices in, not to give us a record prediction or anything like that. We're not going to hold you to that. But give us just general lens. What are you generally thinking for ASU this season? Like, what's what's kind of the overview? Is this going to be a good ASU team? Is it going to be a great ASU team? Is it going to be an average ASU team? Help us out. Give us give us your 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 just nuts and bolts right now. What do you think? So this is a little bit tougher than last year or even probably than the first year of Herm Edwards because of the schematic changes and being four practices into that. But I would kind of be surprised if they go backwards. I, I okay. think I, I think a pretty it's pretty safe to say that they should be at least as good as they were last year. And my sort of initial sense, and their schedule is also favorable. I think their early September, October schedule – it looks really good. So if they can get uh, to where they're feeling good about their schemes and they're winning some games and everybody's buying in, I think there can be a momentum thing happen. And I think that, you know, kind of early, but I think that ASU and USC are probably the two better teams, the two teams I would peg to be atop the South this year. Well, um, you don't think you don't think UCLA is going to do it? Weird. Strange. Uh, yeah, I, I think they got some pretty big problems there, David. I, oh, no yeah. surprise to you, but yeah. No. Um, so yeah, so I don't know. Maybe like I think eight or nine wins is very very achievable this year. Actually, uh, I'm not saying that's going to happen yet, but if they if they're not if they're not at least like a seven win team, that would be actually kind of surprising to me this year. Okay. That's, yeah, two, that makes sense. I mean, two years in a row, seven to five in the regular season. They're going to be one of the favorites in the South. Uh, Utah loses a lot. USC still has a lot of talent, but 
crazy stuff has gone on there too. They changed over more than half the staff. So we're curious to see if it's a if it's a nine and three regular season, they're probably going to win the South, I would think. Yeah, I think it's in a. My sort of guess is this: the South's going to come down to the last week or two again, unless unless USC's defense like really like takes uh, a step forward. You know, that's possible, I guess. But um, just they're going to play in you know, high scoring games. There'll be probably be a lot of close games in the conference, and this I don't think like Arizona, Colorado, or they're not going to be there, and. Utah, you can never really totally rule them out, but they're losing so much that and UCLA, I you know I just don't I don't see it uh, at the end of the day. So I do think ASU and USC are like clearly the top two going in to this year, and I could see either one of those teams winning, you know, eight nine games. Maybe you know maybe USC can win ten games if everything kind of falls in place. Um, but yeah, I think it's going to be fun and interesting, and um, I, I'm I, I'm curious. You know, maybe I'll have to you know listen on one of your other podcasts. But I'm curious to hear what you guys think. What happens at USC if Clay Helton, uh, you know, gets nine nine or ten wins? You know, depending on what happens, if that wins the South or if that wins the Pac-12, or does neither, whether or not um, he's likely to continue or should continue, and um, and yeah, and then you got the, you got the whole Slovis versus Jaden Daniels thing, which is interesting. I'm assuming Slovis is going to be the quarterback. Maybe he won't, but, yeah. um, but that whole thing is kind of, you know, those, that's kind of interesting to me as well. Cause I think you got a pretty fun, uh, kind of battle shaping up with a, it's like ASU didn't like really go on, go on Slovis and despite being a local kid and ASU got Daniels out of Southern California and so I'm kind of interested to see some, how some of these subplots go too. Yeah. I'm out of the predict when Clay will be fired business. Cause I've been wrong for two years. So just like, if it happens, it happens. I just can't people keep, that's like the question that everyone asks you when you're on the radio. I'm just going to say, I don't know. Like I, I thought five and seven, he'd be fired. He wasn't. So I, at this point you just have no idea. Yeah. The answer is never. never. Yeah. He's never going like, to be fired. He's going to retire there. <laughs> well, yeah. It's like their, their, their recruiting was like the, the worst Thing that you can possibly imagine and yet and then they make these you know seemingly really stabilizing type hires with their coaching staff that you think are probably like why why is that happening why are people going there and i don't know maybe because they think they're going to be able to stay there even after helton gets fired if, if that even happens or maybe they genuinely believe like they're actually this is a turnaround year and it's it's happening and they're going to solidify it so i'm I'm as curious as you guys to see what happens and not making any predictions either, Ryan. Yeah. Awesome. Well, he is Chris Cartman, does a great job covering the Sun Devils. You can follow at Sun Devil Source on Twitter or go to sundevilsource.com. It's part of our little network here we have at 24-7 Sports, just dominating Pac-12 coverage. No, Chris, no one comes close in the Pac-12. We just crush the whole Pac-12. It's, 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 I mean, we are, we're just fighting against ourselves at this point. Yeah. Right. right? Like <laughs> we, we're not worried about any other networks or any other types of stuff. I mean, that's that, all that stuff's like long gone. Yeah, it was good. We were like, Chris and I were some of the rivals holdouts back in the day where there was a few better rival sites. And then most of the people were at scout. And then when they all, we all kind of came together and then all became part of 24 seven. It's just been like, yeah, the, the West coast is on lockdown. Yeah, we're hockey sticking. We're good. Yeah. We're, we, we, we got nothing to worry about. Nice.
Uh, all right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for uh, coming on and uh, enjoy the basketball coverage mixed in with a little spring football at a time when, you know, maybe you don't normally do it, but uh, ASU is doing it. Thanks again for coming on. Busy month, but we're enjoying it and appreciate you guys having me. Thanks, Chris. Next up on our Pac-12 spring football previews, we're going to talk about Stanford Cardinal. And we got RJ Abadia on the line. He does a great job covering the Stanford Cardinal for thebootleg.com, part of the 24-7 Sports Network as well. RJ, thanks for coming on, man. No problem. Uh, thanks for having me. What's, a, what's our sound effect now? It's a tree falling. You know, you, you've heard it before. It, it's the. That's, that's what I, well, I felt like there used to be a chainsaw. Like, no, that's somewhere. the beaver. The beaver. Okay. The beaver gets the, the chainsaw. Beavers get, the beavers get the chainsaw. Yeah. I just get a falling tree. Yeah. Well, the, the thing was, I think the a beaver doesn't really make like a noise that you would recognize as a beaver. Right? Yeah. Like, think think in your head right now. What sound does a beaver make? I'm thinking, Dave, but we yeah, well, no, and that's what I'm saying is okay. So what does what is like the sound of building a dam? Like it's like, yeah. I don't know. I just wish there was something more positive about the trees. Like, but there is no sound. I mean, that's the philosophical question, right? Well, at Stanford, you have a choice, right? You can either pick the concept of a color or a tree, but that's it. Okay, here's what I'm going to advocate for. Because of Leland Sanford's history as a, uh, well, tyrannical robber baron, I guess. And a little bit of a white supremacist. Let's just be, (laughs) let's just put all the cards on the table. Well, if you want to take it that way, you can. But Sanford does, like, do, like, the the, the train whistle or the train sound for touchdowns at their games. So I think a little train wouldn't be, like, you know. Like train sound, not the band train. Don't like put those guys on. But but if we do a train, like, are we getting a little far afield at that point? Not to not to the you know ten Stanford fans who are going to listen to this podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, they will get all they'll the references, all, so they'll they'll be they'll like, oh yes, get this, it. Uh, they'll they'll go ah oh, quite, and that's what they'll say. <laughs> yes. Yes. How did this get off the rails already? I guess. guess. Oh, God. Who knows? Who knows? All right. Stanford. They started spring ball. When did they start spring ball, RJ? And how many practices in are they? I'm going to ask Ryan questions now. Well, David, they started spring ball last Tuesday. And then they took two days off so that David Shaw could go to the combine and do NFL draft scout things. He still Um, seems very serious about his college job that he has right now. Um. Well, he does love hosting or being the one college football coach to host or be part of the crew for the NFL draft. I know that that's definitely something he enjoys doing. Um, I'm going to give you Stanford's schedule, as a matter of fact, right now. They practiced last Tuesday. They took two days off. They practiced Friday through Sunday, just this past weekend. Um Per NCAA rule, the pads can't come on until the third practice. So I believe the pads were on for Saturday and Sunday. Um, they are now in the midst of a four-day break, after which they will practice once again, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then they will be off for three weeks. Normal. 
That um, seems so strange, especially the three day in a row practices. Like they're taken from March eighth to March thirtieth off. But when you are practicing, having three days in a row just seems kind of strange. It does, and I I don't know that they aren't, you know, making some adaptations or accommodations for other things that Coach Shaw has to go do, um, or what exactly the the thought process was with that four day gap scenario. Because I agree, you know, there's certainly a more a more balanced way to use your seven practices in two weeks. Um, I mean, the other stuff, Dave, I mean, Dave, Dave's going to be a little bit familiar with it because it's not totally different from what UCLA is doing. Um, at least, you know, per the King bro, like both those schools are on quarter systems. So Stanford is electing to give um, the players dead week finals week, and then spring break off. I think UCLA has only taken two weeks off, but you know, Stanford, um, Coach Shaw has talked often over the past calendar year about the concern of burnout on the coaching staff. And so, you know, it's, um, it is what it is. And certainly the coaches will be well rested um, when they come back for the second session of spring. Honestly, the way you described the schedule. All right. So the gap, yeah, that's something that UCLA is doing as well, but the way you described the schedule is almost exactly how I scheduled classes my last year in college, where I where all that mattered was fitting it into like two or three consecutive days so that I would get a four day off period. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah, well, you can't knock them for being savvy. I mean, no, I appreciate the I, efficiency. I agree. Like as you progress through your undergraduate years, right? You figure out first of all, nothing before ten a.m. That's right, obviously. That's a sucker move that only freshmen do, you know. And then you start thinking like, okay, but do I really want to be in class on Fridays? No. Then you wrap it around and you're like, Monday? Eh. So yeah, yeah, that's what you said. Unfortunately, Tuesday, Thursday, you handle your business. Since neither of you guys were engineers, we got screwed and all that stuff. I always had 8 a.m. classes. I always had Friday classes. So I, I didn't get to uh, skate through like you clowns. Who's winning or losing then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, also, the interesting great. thing is the, the real galaxy brain thing is realizing at the end of the day, you actually don't. It doesn't even matter when you schedule your classes because by your fifth year, you're not going anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Dave's alone on that island, yeah. but I'm just going to say, like, you know, Ryan, I'm sure your subscribers are grateful on a daily basis for the engineering knowledge that you bring to. <laughs> yes. <laughs> USDfootball.com. So, you know what? You have only yourself to thank for that educational choice. <laughs> well, one of the choices that uh, a lot of the Stanford play- players were making is to go in this thing called the NCAA Transfer Portal. Uh, you know, a couple of big losses, obviously, KJ Costello, a couple of the starting defensive linemen. You know, there was talk about, you know, not really not having an option to go and do a graduate degree at Stanford because it's just really hard for players to get in there. So it's almost like it forces you to go somewhere else, but I wanted you to give us the skinny, how many players, you know, went in there. Is it really that big of a deal? Like people look at, Oh, there's 14 players going on the portal. It's, it's a mass exodus. What's really happening at Stanford. Right. Yeah. I think that much, there was much of a hullabaloo, a kerfluffle, if you will, 
um, once that number got to where it got, and I think it finished at like 13 or 14, I'm looking right now, let's see, 3, 5, 8, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, so 16 guys. Whoa. Um, well, a couple, I think, were, were a couple walk-ons in there, or like, was it all? Yes, there were some walk-ons, there were some, I mean, again, it, for me, it was never the quantity. Because first of all, it's, there's a math thing anyways, right? If you're bringing in 20 kids as freshmen, someone's got to go, right? So at a certain point, if you really wanted all of these transfer guys back, then you'd have had to have unload actual fourth-year seniors. And I don't think there's that many fourth-year seniors who you valued more or less than the guys who are back. Um Scooter Harrington and Tomas Schopper both actually are back at Stanford, so you can subtract them. Um, KJ Costello, it was a very interesting scenario, but I think the writing was pretty much on the wall that I think the Stanford coaches were really ready to move on to Davis Mills. Um, you know, a guy who in, in his in his recruiting class was the, the number one quarterback in the class and who has just not had any kind of health fortune in his Stanford career and I think it's just it was just clearly his time and I think everyone kind of recognized that you know so for KJ to move on I don't think anyone really had any hopes to me like I said it's more the quantity and really if we're going to drill down on it it's about those two defensive linemen because both Jovan Swan and Mike Williams while you know they had not ascended to like all conference level of players those were starters those were first-line guys. They were going to be guaranteed to play a lot of snaps this year for Stanford um, at a position where they're thin and inexperienced now as a result of their departures. So the concern, if we're really getting down to the football in the 2020 season, losing those two guys was a much bigger story than the total number of guys who ended up in the portal. Well, okay, so that's one kind of data point for the David Shaw era, you know, at an interesting crossroads. Um, another one is kind of the way the offensive identity has sort of lost, um, well, it, its, its identity. identity the last couple of years. Um, what do you, obviously there were circumstances that caused that, just kind of the way the teams were formulated, um, you know, having better wide receiver and tight end talent than offensive line talent and so on and so forth. Is that something they can get back to? Or is is it kind of now they have to carve out a new identity? Well, I think they can get back to it in the sense that at some point, and, and, and they, I mean, Coach Shaw's been on the record. They've all kind of acknowledged this. It's not like something that we're accusing them of that they're not recognizing. Um, they need to identify something. Like, they need to identify some run scheme that they make their own. You know, I think in the days, you know, in their best days that you're, you know, that you're kind of referring to, there was just always that power run play with the pulling guard. And you saw it so many times. Even opposing fans could probably draw it and diagram it. You know, it wasn't... It, it, it was their identity, and everything that they did came off of that, whether that was leveraging, you know, Andrew Luck in play action or, you know, Dave's favorite player, Kevin Hogan. Um, you know, it, it, was, it was an identity, and they had one. And what had happened 
what happened after essentially they won the Rose Bowl is that that went in decline. And in the 2016 season, it wasn't as effective, but you still had Christian McCaffrey and Bryce Love on the same team. So it's not like they couldn't run the ball. Um, In the 2017 season, what you had was Bryce Love going bananas. And the nature of his success was basically a lot of bad runs or just short runs and then a big home run, right? And, you know, if you carry the ball three times and you gain one yard and two yard and 80 yards, well, you're averaging about, what, 35 yards a carry? <laughs> but you're not being really efficient. You know, you're not winning the way Stanford used to win, which is just that constant stream of four yards, five yards, four yards, five yards, right? And they even started to lose, um, you know, third and one, third and two, fourth and one, downs that they were very, very proficient at. They started to lose those battles, and they haven't gotten to a place where they're winning those battles consistently. And, you know, part of it has been about, as Dave said, you know, the talent has kind of gone away. Like their best, their best players last year were, were pass catchers. So at a certain point, it just makes sense that you should probably lean towards them. But the bottom line is they couldn't identify a run scheme inside zone, outside zone, man, whatever, they couldn't find something that they did really well. And last year, of course, it was exacerbated by an insane amount of offensive line injuries that ended up that left them with, you know, three freshman starters who were not intended to be so. Um, so just rounding it back up. Yeah, they have offensive line talent. They have running back talent that they're excited about. And they still have someone who can throw the ball and good receivers. So it's really just about, getting some injury fortune and then it's their job to just they got to find what works for them and and stick with it enough so that people can actually recognize it as their identity one of the things rj happens in this business where uh you know even a successful coach you go four and eight we saw that happen with uh oregon there was a bunch of changes we saw it happen with notre dame uh usc went five and seven a bunch of changes you look with Stanford, they go four and eight and, you know, Tarita Pritchard's back as the offensive coordinator. Lance Anderson's back as defensive coordinator. Um, Arizona State had a whole bunch of staff turnover. What was this? Was there any staff to- turnover at Stanford? And did you think they needed to make some moves after that kind of a season? Well, it's like with so many things with Stanford, it's become really muddled um, because First of all, on the offensive side, it's never it's never divulged explicitly who's calling the plays, um, and that's intentional, and that's entirely be- by Coach Shaw's choice. Um, but the point is, it's very hard if you look at other schools where you clearly know that the offensive coordinator is responsible for the scheme, and you clearly know who's calling the plays. You can you can take look uh, you can take an honest straight line approach and say well if we're not scoring we probably need to make a change in offensive coordinator but I don't I don't know that you can say that about Stanford situation so it doesn't it's not as easy as saying well we weren't good we didn't get the job done and this is the guy who's responsible for it because I think Coach Shaw certainly has his hands and input 
in the offense and the way it works. And so when it doesn't work, it's not as easy as saying, well, we need a new offensive coordinator. Um, on the defensive side, Lance Anderson has a great track record that would strongly suggest that it was more a lack of personnel last year than it was a lack of his abilities. Like he didn't forget how to coach defensively in my mind. So, you know, I, I think it's a little more complicated than what it might be under, under the situations you described at those other schools. And the other part of it is, is that that's not David Shaw. Like he wouldn't do that anyway. And I think it's interesting that you brought up the Notre Dame situation because it's one that, you know, I've kind of, I, I looked at with a lot of interest, the way they handled Brian Kelly and the way they essentially had the equivalent of a coaching intervention with him, right? And sat him down and said, you need to make these changes. You need to make these staff changes. And if you want to stay here, that's what needs to happen. Um, there's nobody at Stanford who could or would sit David Shaw down and make him do that. Huh. So it really would have to be Coach Shaw deciding that this group that he's been working with, um, I mean, aside from the newly hired inside linebacker coach, I think everybody's been there now at least four to five years. And when you're talking about, when you're talking about Tavita Pritchard, he hasn't left campus since he was 18. <laughs> he, I mean, you know, talk about the David Woods, you know, program. Um, That's the real truth right there. He got to Stanford and he has not left. And I'm talking about his playing days, not his coaching. Like he's never left. So he's been there for the entirety of Coach Shaw's tenure. Lance Anderson has been there for the entirety of Coach Shaw's tenure. I think Dwayne Aquina is, I think, is year eight, eight or nine at Stanford now, and year 40 as a coach. And so I just don't think they think along those lines. They don't think that way, you know, regardless of what fans might say or or what other schools do. So – I think you're very much right to call it a crossroads season because four and eight is four and eight. Like even with all the injuries they had, if you look at their level of play over the last three or four years, it is not where it was. Yeah. And at a certain point, you have to take a look at how that's working and why that's happening. Offensively, I mean, Stanford still had its – it's up periods the last couple of years. Um, but defensively, Stanford hasn't had an elite defense going by SP plus since 2016. Um, and when I think about Stanford and the like elite teams under Harbaugh and Shaw, it was all built on those really fearsome front sevens of just big, tough, angry, mean outside linebackers and defensive linemen. And it was also, it, there was a feeling that there was real depth there. Um, in yeah. probably the last four or five years, I haven't felt like there's any depth, especially up front on the defensive line. And you mentioned the transfers, but what is the prospect for the front seven once again returning to some level of uh, close to elite or near elite? And talk to me about the strength and conditioning program, because we were talking about that last offseason. There was a kind of a weird thing going on there with the changeover in that staff. How much do you think that is affecting maybe this team just not looking quite as fearsome as it used to? So, yeah, I'll, I'll do the strength and conditioning last and I'll start just with the, with, with who comprises the front seven, right? 
Um, defensive line wise, losing those two guys was kind of a big deal. I mean, you're basically talking about now one player um, in Dalen Wade Perry who has even any measurable amount of experience um, on on the defensive line, and that's you know just just as an interior defensive tackle, like they don't have a lot of guys who can literally just be in between the tackles and and match up. And so um, as far as the three position groups that make up the front seven, I think the biggest concern and the biggest question mark is still the defensive line. Um, Thomas Booker is the guy that they like. He's a defensive end guy. He plays a little bit inside, you know, three technique and whatnot, but he's a guy they like. Wade Perry has some experience. Then there's some other guys who are going to have to step in and they're not very experienced and we don't know yet, you know, what their upside is. So that's the biggest question mark. And, and to your point, Dave, you're right. I mean, defensive line, it, they've been thin and it actually goes back to the last Rose Bowl season, the 2015 season. Um, they literally rotated three men. They had three guys who each had over 800 snaps that season. And that's so they were walking, they were, they were walking a fine line even before the level of play dropped off. And then you add that with, you know, some recruiting shortfalls at that position and guys not panning out. And that's what you get. Now, at outside linebacker, there's a lot of talent there. And I expect them to be good and competitive. There's, you know, young guys who are not household names yet, but young guys like Andres Fox, Toby Umara, Stephen Heron Jr., um, Jordan Fox is an experienced guy, and he's back um, after injury. But outside linebacker has some guys and some talent out there who should make an impact. And then I think the group that's going to make the biggest step forward is the inside linebacker group. Um, there are Stanford lost two sophomores last year in Ricky Miazon and Jacob Megan Farrar, both who had a great shot at ending up starters, if not substantive contributors. And they lost them for the season. And it was bad. It was very difficult. They had Andrew Pritz, who had moved in from safety as a starter. And then they had Curtis Robinson, who was moving in from outside linebacker. And those were kind of the guys who had to, had to make their way as inside linebackers. This year, they've got Curtis Robinson coming back. They've got those two guys I just mentioned returning. And they've got Tristan Sinclair, who was a four-star recruit. Um, coming in as a sophomore who they are very, very high on. Um, he's just a really smart football player, really gifted athlete. Um, so I think inside linebacker is going to take a significant step forward this year. And so I think the front seven should be better. Now, as far as getting back to the level of play that you described, I think that's probably a stretch within the scope of this coming season. RJ, last thing for me, if, you know, you've, a few practices in. Uh, what do you What do you want to learn the most for the Stanford team? Is there some aspect you want to kind of figure out uh, from the spring football session? Well, I think they're kind of limited because they still this first spring session and basically all of spring is still going to be dedicated to rehabbing. I mean, just for example, Stanford is missing three out of five likely starters on its offensive line, so. It's tough to say, you know, the five guys that are playing there, okay, you're going to build that up and let's see what you guys look like. And let's, you know, like I said before, let's figure out what you guys do best and how you work with one another, because those aren't going to be the guys in the fall. 
you know, Walker Little, um, who was a preseason All-America tight end la- or, uh, left tackle last year and was lost for the year and fortunately for Stanford decided to come back. He's not practicing yet. Foster Sorrell, who's going to start at right tackle and was the starter last year, he's not back. And then Branson Bragg, who also was lost for the year last year, um, is a sophomore who I think everybody thinks is going to be very competitive as a starting guard. So, you know, it, it's tough to say what they're going to get out of spring. What they need to get out of spring most, more than anything is just healthy. If they can at least get out of spring and say, all right, our guys are back, they're going to be ready for the summer, and they're going to be ready for, you know, fall camp, that's about as close to a win as you can get because I don't think there's a lot else that you're going to decide when you just don't have these guys available to play. Well, um, I, so when I'm thinking about um, the Stanford era, I look at the way things have trended. So I'm going by SRS right now, uh, RJ. Um, yeah. SRS would indicate to me that Stanford has declined five straight years. Um, now, I know we've got a blip up there, but gut feeling right now, is David Shaw still going to be the coach at Stanford in three years? Um, I think I would have to say yes, because I don't think there's a coach with more job security in the country than him. Um, he is very much entrenched up there. And he is, again, despite the, the trend that you've pointed out, like, he is by far the most successful football coach in the history of the program. And we're not far enough removed from that for people to really, I think, feel or be able to inflict much pressure. Also, he's at Stanford, so <laughs> pressure, you know, it's not the same. It's not the same kind of media scrutiny that the USC coaches get. It's not the same kind of fan base scrutiny that an SEC coach would get, you know, or the USC coach would get for that matter. So I think if you're betting, just betting blind without knowing what's going to happen, I think you have to say he's going to be there in three years. Now, that's not to say that the wheels can just totally fly off and, you know, he's just not touchable. Um, The truth is for this season, if Davis Mills is healthy and can play the whole season, then they're going to score points. They should be better on defense, and that should add up to a better team, Uh, you know, a team that can win seven, eight games. If things go right, maybe they can win nine games. If anything happens to Davis Mills, we're talking about a two and 10 team. And if that happens, you can't just blithely say he's going to be the guy for a while, but betting blind. Yeah. I would expect him to be there for the next three years. RJ Abadia does an awesome job covering the Stanford Cardinal. It's always interesting Getting you on, RJ. Thanks again for uh, coming on and looking forward to all your reports from the rest of practice and maybe a little hoops, maybe a little Pac-12 tournament. We'll see. Stanford's play a little bit better now. Absolutely. Hope hope springs eternal in March. (laughs) Thanks, RJ. Well, good stuff there from uh, Chris and RJ. Did you learn a lot about the uh, ASU and Stanford programs, Dave? So much. I'm blown away. I'm blown away. You know, it, it felt so brief. The last moment we talked, but it's been so long. It's been 45, maybe 55 minutes since it was just you and I on this call. Crazy. Uh, well, it's good stuff. We appreciate those guys coming in. I, I'm just not a – I don't want to see 
spring football start in February. You know, I just want it to be no. later. I would, I, I think everyone should agree that it shouldn't happen until after the first weekend of the NCAA tournament. At that point, you can start it. Before that, no, no. Yeah. Under no circumstances. And it seems like everyone, everyone's spring schedule is just a little bit weird for different reasons. Like, yeah, like David Shaw is trying to plan a lot of four day weeks. Um, <laughs> and ASU is trying to stay away from the sun. Like, there's lots of weird stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we'll, uh, so we got ASU and Stanford down, and uh, we'll jump into some of the other programs again next week. We'll probably knock out, you know, two or three, I guess, every week and uh, go forward. Sometimes it'll be in the middle of their spring football, but we don't want to do too many in a week. And then uh, we'll just keep kind of keep going that way, whoever starts and, uh, and go through. And it should be, it should be interesting kind of learning a little bit about all these different programs. Um, we want to jump into questions and we got the first one is from our, our buddy Scott in Washington. So this is the sec deal with ABC slash ESPN and PAC 12 fallout. And he says, Dave slash Ryan, when the sec leaves for ABC ESPN, and he said the CBS contract runs another four years, but there's rumors about terminating, terminating it sooner. Each school will get another $20 million alone just from that deal or almost 50% of what each Pac-12 team gets in total. Houston, we have went far past the point of having a problem. So my question is, with ABC slash ESPN, having all the conferences and inventory needed to run games from 9 a.m. through 5 p.m. on the West Coast, could you see a scenario at the next TV negotiations with the Pac-12 where they simply say, we need you essentially just for night games, take it or leave it, and offer a TV deal that would be at best equal and more than likely under that scenario, uh, less than what they're currently paying. That sounds terrible. Fox is a dumb. And if they get wind of that, which they would, I could see where they lowball the conference as well. Thanks for the podcast and keep up the good work. Go dogs, Scott and Washington. Yeah, you could see it. Um, I, I'm, I don't know a whole lot about how these negotiations work, but that certainly makes sense to me on the surface um, that if ABC and ESPN have enough rights to games to occupy all that time, why would they spend a bunch of money on additional Pac-12 games, which don't draw the eyeballs that the other games do? Makes sense to me. Um, this is why I think the Pac-12, they need to get super creative with this next round of it. Um, we... I half threw it out last time. Go talk to Amazon. Go see if they want to just throw down a bunch of money to get into live streaming of sports and just be the Amazon. Because, look, a lot of people have Amazon or be Netflix, whatever. Who cares? Um, But just pick one of those services and do it and just do it big. Because most people have smart TVs now. Yeah, you're going to lose something, but you might get overpaid by one of these organizations and everyone can get it. Um, who has an internet connection. So I don't know. Do something crazy. Break out of the mold. You got to do something crazy. The problem is that you are going to lose eyeballs there. It's going to be available to a lot of people. But How many eyeballs do they get on the Pac-12 network right uh, now? No, I mean, everything's better than what's going on there. But you, if you're going to require people to, uh, I, oh, I need a Roku or I need this box or you know Apple TV or something so I could watch this. Um, there's just a lot of people that traditionally like to sit on the couch, throw on the TV. They're, they're used to going to ESPN or even an FS1 uh, and just finding those games. So 
And I with this SEC deal, this this isn't like to cover the whole SEC. This is for the game of the week. They're getting gonna get each school is gonna get twenty million dollars extra for one game, uh, one game every week, and that's pretty crazy. Uh, and I don't know if they're going to be able to, you know, go sooner. Right now, apparently, the CBS deal that they do the game of the week is like the biggest bargain ever. Now, just having that one game is is great. Um, but you know, CBS would be out of, you know, maybe they want to look at the Pac-12 because they're going to lose the SEC. I don't know. It's hard to say. Like, there's still going to be competition for live sporting events. So I don't, I don't think this scenario where the Pac-12 get gets lowballed is really going to be you know, that big of a worry, but it's, I just don't think you're going to, you're not going to be able to make a deal that can make up for the 12 years of deficiencies in, in revenue. You'll get a better deal, but it's just no, it's, it's still going to be behind what the big 10 and the sec get. And you're no way going to make up for that gap. The only way you could is if the PAC 12, because they own the rights to the PAC 12 network somehow turns that into this huge windfall, but nobody watches it. I just don't see how that's going to be the case. That was a risk. Uh, that Larry Scott was was taking, you know, thinking that this network was going to be worth, you know, hundreds of millions or billions. Like, it's just, I don't see that being the case now. Yeah, I think that's right. All right, you ready for Devin? Yeah. UW D-line issues. Another listener brought up a couple problems with different teams' rosters and said UW had a D-lineman problem. However, people often call our defense a 2 2 2 Two DTs, two outside linebackers, defensive ends, two inside linebackers, and five defensive backs, or a hybrid between a 3-4 and a 4-3 that's always in nickel. We have a lot of players listed as linebackers, but in reality, they are hybrid DNs. For instance, Joe Tryon and Ryan Bowman are the starting outside linebackers, but both are 270 pounds and have their hand in the ground 80% of the time. Well, really, you're just describing a 4-2-5 then, which is fine. It's just a nickel defense. Uh, also, the listener stated Utah had a young players problem, and I don't know this for sure, but I'd imagine they have many players on missions who aren't listed on the roster yet. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, but I'd imagine that number inflates back up to normal when the roster is updated with the mission kids. Okay, so he's saying um, those kind of hybrid D-end outside linebackers playing in this system actually are more like defensive linemen. Yeah. Um, I, 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 we'd have to go back to Hifflade's email um i think he was referencing defensive tackle types but i could be wrong um when i'm thinking defensive line i'm thinking defensive tackle types because those are kind of the rare unicorns on the west coast in particular getting those 290 300 pounder guys who have you know athleticism and talent up front um the the 250 to 270 pound guys are a little bit easier to find um so yeah but that's that's kind of what I was thinking there, but we'd have to go back to his email. I, I can't remember if he was referencing defensive tackles or just linemen generally. Yeah. Well, this kind of Garrett, Devin, this kind of guarantees we're going to get a follow up from Hithliday. So he'll tell you exactly what he was talking about. And, uh, and, and it'll there. be beautiful. It'll be beautiful. It'll be poetic. There'll be some unintelligible subject line. It'll be wonderful. We'll all enjoy it. We will. Um, all right. Thanks for that one, Devin. We did get a text message. It uh, was unsigned, I believe. Uh, hello, gentlemen. Dave. Can you please speak to the genius that is Bill Walton? I know you love him, as do I. And so does everybody I talk to. But I see a lot of hate for him on Twitter. I don't understand how anyone can hate that man and his vibrant color commentary, especially 
when the latter option is a C minus ESPN crew. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I've got lots of thoughts. Um, I think there's a lot of, so first I love Bill Walton. Uh, love, love, love listening to him talk about basketball games. Um, I sort of get the people who can't handle it. Um, but I also think that there's some first, some people who just like fundamentally do not understand what's going on. Like a lot of people think Bill Walton, like I see this on uh, Twitter a lot. Wow. This guy must be high as balls right now. Like that's what they say about him. And I'm like, I, I think you're kind of missing the, the, the genius here. Like Bill Walton is, if you're like taking everything he says, as if he seriously is believing the thing he says, you're you're not really getting the whole thing. He's like, this is like first some like deep and biting sarcasm a lot of the time, like 50% of the time. And the other time, it's this kind of sweet absurdism. Like he is like, I think in like the philosophical sense, an absurdist. And this is the belief that, you know, it's a purposeless, chaotic, meaningless existence. But I'm going to go ahead and search for purpose anyway. And he's applied that to this most mundane thing, which is basketball. He's like, uh, this is the, and that's what all that, like, oh, that was the, the best shot in the history of the human, you know, race or whatever. It's this, like, you know, just this pursuit of meaning in this, like, weird sport. But it's also really funny. It's really, when you get down to it, kind of erudite. Like, the things he's referencing, the weird books he's read, all these things that he's able to talk discursively about without really any prompting. It's kind of incredible for for a guy to be just that in tune with like so many different things. Um, so I, I think on an intellectual level, it's really enjoyable. I think it's kind of funny. And most of these guys are not funny in any real way whatsoever. Um, he's also really good with Pash. And I don't think Pash is very good with him. Um, I think Pash's thing is he thinks it's just this like ribbing shtick. But Walton's actually very generous with like taking a lot of crap from Pash. And Pash kind of gets a little stuck up when he gets uh, when he gets crap from Walton. So I don't know. It's um, apparently an acquired taste. A lot of people don't seem to enjoy it. Um, they like the kind of dull, dry commentary on the game. I guess I'm watching the game, watching the plays, seeing what's going on. So I don't need somebody breaking it down the whole time for me. Um, but no, Walton's great. He's incredible. Hilarious. Awesome. Uh, don't ever want to watch a game that he's not announcing. See, I'm not, it's, I don't think I've acquired that taste and I, I'm not a huge, you know, consumer of college basketball. It's not like there's other guys that I really enjoy. Like, you know, Dick Vitale gets on my nerves and, you know, just, I don't, but when you hear like some of the stuff that Walton says, and you know, I'm probably not getting it like you are saying, but when he's talking about the Pac-12 being amazing and everyone's, you know, it's like you listen to him. It's like every team's undefeated and they're the best in the country. Um, you, you get that kind it's, of like. It's it's designed like he's doing that deeply sarcastically. Like okay. that's what all of that is. It's all just absolute biting absurdity. Like that's what he's aiming for. So sometimes like if I haven't watched, like I don't know, you know, I've watched a lot of like, say, you know, Arizona State basketball. And they're a pretty good team. And if I listen to like one game that he does, I don't feel like I I know more about the players like, you know. No, no, that's not what he's there for. Okay. And he'll no. So what he'll do is he'll like dig into like a player, but it'll be like stuff about their background or whatever. But it'll be whatever is like he finds particularly interesting. But it's not gonna be like 
oh, let me break you break down this guy as a player. No, it's not really any of that. So I think for me, like if there's a game I have to watch, like it's a USC game or something, he's done a bunch of them. It's sort of, you know, it's it's not really resonating. I'm not like, oh, wow, this is real. I'm really into this. But if it was like a random, uh, like Purdue, Illinois basketball game, I think I'd rather have him doing it. Like if I didn't really need to know what was going on and didn't care, I think it would be more entertaining just to kind of listen to him do it. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. I think that's kind of like the half the half in half out position, which is that you don't really know all that much about USC basketball because you're not watching every single game. So when you do watch it, because you have to kind of know a little bit um, to have him there, just like talking distractedly instead of actually informing you about it is a little bit annoying because you actually need to, you know, you want to hear what's actually going on because you're tuning to the team you cover um, or the team, you know, you're not covering basketball. I'm not giving away any secrets. No. Um, but for me, I guess I'm watching basically every UCLA basketball game. I don't need him to tell me that whatever Chris Smith is inconsistent. Jalen Hill, you know, needs to work on his left hand. I like whatever. I, I get that from watching it. But like the other stuff, like just the, the sheer enjoyment of watching a basketball game is enhanced by somebody just kind of having fun with it, like having fun with the whole thing. And, I compare it to listening to a guy like Don McLean talking about a game and sure he's maybe breaking things down things down a little bit more but first number 1 the things he say says are more often demonstrably wrong than anything that comes out of Walton's mouth when Walton talks so he might not be breaking down the exact play that's happening but the things he say he says are true about basketball. Like they are, oh yeah, that's obvious. That's that's exactly right. That's the way basketball should be played. Like the very simple stuff, like dribble at your man, dribble at your your uh, your teammate's man to get him open. You know, all this kind of stuff. That's like, oh yeah, that's a basic truism, but that's kind of the way John Wooden coached the game. That's the way Walton learned it. Um, and those simple things, if you do them enough and you repeat them enough. You get good at basketball. And I think that's also part of what he's doing is, look, you don't need to talk about all this like weird tactical stuff. It's just it's a simple game. Play it this way. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm I'm a big Walton believer. I love the guy. I think he's very good at what he does. Um, and I think I think it's some people who are trying to get something out of the broadcast that, yeah, OK, if you're looking for like real hardcore information, then, yeah, it's probably not for you. And it's people who aren't really getting the 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 thing he's doing um if you want to call it shtick i guess that's right but uh, by and large i think it's better than basically everything else out there don mclean won but steve lavin if you want to go into the the uh, i'm just talking about former ucla affiliated people who are now in announcing which is a commentary on so many different things but steve lavin um just pure banal cliche like and it's almost like he's not even watching the games when he's announcing them it's just all of his weird sayings that have no meaning whatsoever, just repeated ad nauseum. They were like Doesn't preloaded like or something. Name. But, oh, God, he's so bad. <laughs> so bad. Um, but he sounds smooth. So I think people like are OK listening to him. But no, give me Walton every day. Nice. All right. Uh, All right. Hit for day. You so, ready? It's our last one. Yep. Last one. Savasana. All right. So this is um, this is downward dog. Yes. I believe. So this is going to be a husky thing. Yes, this is uh yeah, that's like a a yoga deal. So Yeah, that's yeah. a yoga. 
deal. That's uh, that's the position they always put you in as like almost a rest pose. Let me tell you, not really a rest pose. Kinda no, sucks. it stretches your back Downward out a little bit. Sucks. Yeah, yeah, but. Yeah. It's like the one of the most basic poses, I guess, in yoga. Yeah, I don't want to be in downward dog for very long. Okay. Shit hurts. All right. Uh, last year at about this time, I asked after your expectations for Washington, given how many starters they would have to replace in 2019. I was impressed that you recognized the reference to Theravada Buddhism in the subject line. Sadly, that feeling didn't last long as within a couple of weeks, David predicted the Huskies to go 11-1. and one, And Ryan was even more sanguine in calling for an undefeated season. Incidentally, while listening to that podcast in the archives to find your response, I was fascinated by Chris from Seoul's question about which schools should replace their coaches. The two you singled out as needing to upgrade were Oregon with Jeff Brom and Cal with Jeff Tedford. Brom went 4-8 in 2019, and Tedford has retired. We're very good at what we do. Well, uh, Tedford was still chart- good, and Brom is still really good. Brom is still really good, so that's not a... You never just accept the sick burn. It was a good burn. He went back and listened to a podcast just to burn us. At least respect it. Uh, Below is a chart laying out the starters that UW will have to replace in 2020 and how that turnover compares to last offseasons. Does this strike you boys as a better or worse situation than last time? And do you suppose it'll affect your forecasts? All right. So um, he's saying there is... Well... Okay. This Starting is, quarterback not returning in either year. Starting running back not returning in either year. Right? Is that the way you're reading this? Yeah. So there's so basically he lists offense, defense, coaches, 2019, 2020 for each one, and there's a bunch of different categories, and he's going to put an X under each year if you if that's what Washington lost, and so for he's basically saying two years in a row they lost their starting quarterback and their starting running back. And their top receiving tight end. So two years in a row. So he's trying to say, look, guys, Washington's not going to be that good. You should pick Oregon. Okay, fine. So basically they lose everything important on offense, three out of the five important factors on defense, and three out of the four coaches that we're talking about. Head coach, offensive coordinator, and tight ends coach. They return their receivers coach. They return both safeties and both cornerbacks, but basically everyone else is gone. Um well, he's kind of like picking and choosing. Yeah, I'm starting DL in a two-four. What? Come on. Yeah, <laughs> he he's trying to you know skew the numbers in his way. But if you look at you know losing the starting, it doesn't look good. All right, we'll say that it doesn't look good. Yeah. So so starting quarterback, starting running back, top receiving tight end, top wide receiver, uh, two of the next four wide receivers. That's kind of picking and choosing. Um, starting left tackle, starting starting center, and starting right tackle. So. That's all real, you know. Um, so it there are there's a lot of dudes to replace, and with the coaching stuff, you got you know that's you're making the big coaching change. But I think there's going to be a lot of continuity also, um, just because you're you're promoting from within. But there's a you know significant concerns to a team that didn't perform nowhere anywhere near the level we thought they could last year. Yep. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. I, I think I'm going to pick the Huskies to go undefeated again, go to the playoffs. So we'll see. I'd say 11 and one. Yeah. You're going to be a conservative. That's fine. Yeah. I'm that a conservative works. guy. Uh, thanks. Hit Make sure you go back and listen to all our old podcasts. Find anything we said that was stupid. It shouldn't be that hard to find. Just any, just turn it on any podcast, anytime. And most likely we're saying something stupid. The odds of us saying something stupid, like at the very moment you listen are, are very good. 
Hell, just listen to this podcast over again. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Dave, I think it's going to wrap it up. Good stuff today. Great stuff. Yeah. Best stuff we've ever done. Cool. So apologize if the audio sounds a little weird because we had some different recording situations to get our guests on. But hope you guys enjoyed it. That's David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Hope you listen again soon. Listen to the old shows. Listen to the podcast. Tell your friends. And we will talk to you next time.